I was just clinically depressed, you know, clinically depressed, absolutely rock bottom. And I was playing sports arenas at the time. Had a number one hit at the time. And that's where I was. Hello, and welcome to the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. I'm your host, Nick McGowan. Today on the show, I have Christian Ray Flores. Christian, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you on. I was talking about um, how it's interesting having conversations with people who have their own show or are on tons of different podcasts and how we can just get into really great conversations. And it's funny to me when I have conversations with people up front, just kind of shooting the breeze that there are some times where I'm like, oh my God, we need to like record, just hit the damn button because we just keep talking. And you and I were about to fall into that spot. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. And there's a lot that you've already gone through throughout your life. And it feels like just based on a little bit of conversation we're having, there's so much more ahead for you. So why don't you kick us off? Tell us what you do for a living and what's one thing that most people don't know about you that's maybe a little odd or bizarre. I have a lot of things that are bizarre about me, nice. but about me, my, yeah, what I do, it's also bizarre because basically I, I run a couple of businesses and I, you know, I'm in two nonprofit sort of situations. One is I have a marketing agency, so we do videographic storytelling stuff, both for businesses and for essentially authority marketing. That's sort of a good term to use. And um, I run a coaching program. This is actually the newer thing for high achievers who basically hit a ceiling you know that invisible ceiling that you go i'm not sure exactly how to yeah. how to grow from here so that's what i do so that's sort of my passion thing i i love doing that i've loved you know mentoring entrepreneurs artists athletes for 25 years now and um i'm a pastor at a small church that i that i started 10 years ago here in austin texas and I have a nonprofit that does two things. We have a, an after-school academy in Mozambique, in Africa. Mm. And uh, I can tell you all kinds of stories that led to that. And we do work. We have done work for the refugees in Ukraine. That's sort of a recent new thing. And the Ascend Mission Fund. So if you want to look it up, Ascend Mission Fund, that's where it is. Okay, so that's it. Quick, right? Well, good talking to you. That's Thanks not... for being on the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are the things. Um so weird thing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, geez, uh, I have to just pick one. OK, one that I've never mentioned anywhere that I've helped several Russia, Russian members of the Russian mafia clean up their act and get out of the mafia. I'm really glad that I don't think I've ever said that on air. <laughs> I've never said that on air. Uh, this is a long time ago, but that's an interesting that's an interesting experience that I will never forget. And I will cherish for as long as I live. What a weird statement to be able to say, like to be able to help. You them asked sleep. me weird. Yeah, I know. And I get that, which is so awesome. Uh, being able yeah, to, yeah. well, being able to think back to that. Um, I mean, I, let's, let's see if people try to connect to that in any way, they could say, you know, I had a friend maybe in school or at one job where I was able to speak some <laughs> wisdom to him or love on them a little bit, but not many people could be like, you know what? I turned the ways of a couple mafia men. Uh, yes. Got to give us some background yes, to that. Well, you know, it was it was the 90s. Uh, I, I grew up on four different continents. I grew up in Russia, Chile, Germany, Africa, back to Russia, Ukraine, then to the U.S. So that gives you a little bit of a geography over my life. And we can go into some backstories there as well. But in the 90s, I was in Russia and uh, I was uh, I became a Christian there. And, uh, you know, a lot of these guys uh, in the mafia 
obviously they have they they were conflicted right mm-hmm. so i helped a few of them actually leave that the, the life of crime and uh it was fascinating because of the type of people they are right uh, so I have actually a deep admiration for them, not because they did evil things, but because these are people that are like adventurous. They're like cowboys, right? <laughs> they're like gunslingers, literally. quite fr- quite quite literally, and uh, and but they have passion, they have boldness, and and they also have a weird, interesting spirituality about them as well. Mm. Like they have respect for scripture, for example, which is like you would never know. And they have anger issues. So combine that uh, into a body of somebody who can literally kill you with your with their bare hands, and you can imagine some of those conversations. It's been it was interesting. I bet. <laughs> I so how did you get into the conversation to begin with? That's that's kind of the big question. Okay, I have I have I have literally a whole series of them, right? But I have, I'll tell you one one conversation. Uh, so I was um, I was cheering up a buddy of mine who was uh, a, a a lightweight Greco-Roman wrestler, and he was a member of my church. And a bunch of us showed up to cheer him up. And it was like a local championship. Another guy who was the heavyweight Greco-Roman, second in all of in all of Russia, but second after, if, if you are a Greco-Roman connoisseur, you can look up, um, gosh, I just forgot his name. That's embarrassing. But this there was this guy in Russia who is like the Muhammad Ali, oh, like the all-time, okay. he's the GOAT, right? Karelin, Alexander Karelin. Look him up and you'll see what kind of beast that person is. So my buddy Sergei Kanenenko was number two after him, heavyweight Greek Roman, and he hated me. I had this long hair. I was in show business at the time. so And, and the Greco-Roman world was actually controlled by the Russian mafia, like quite mm-hmm. literally financed, organized, housed everything like so these guys were training financed uh, and then they were also the enforcers you know uh the muscle yeah uh, at the same time this is the 90s it's like the wild west in russia so i'm in the in the we're in the locker room and this guy corners me uh and he's massive like he can he can kill me hmm. like so easily so he corners me into the into like the wall and he just yells at me and he goes like what are you doing and you, you, you know, you have this long hair. Who are you anyway? And, you know, like you can imagine anger issues, right? And, and he goes, are you even a man? And, you know, like he's just, and, and, I, and I actually don't remember saying that. He tells me that I said that because I was, I think I was just completely terrified. Sure. But I basically interrupt him and say, are you a real man? To this mountain of a man, right? Jeez. And he goes, what? And I go, well, if you're a real man, you'll follow Jesus. You know? And he literally stopped what he was doing. And that night he started reading the Bible. A few weeks later, he he literally left the the mafia world. And that's a long story because I helped him get out of it. Mm. Like his boss came to my house with a gun, basically saying, what are you doing to my boy? You know, <clears throat> this guy is now a pastor of a major church in Moscow, Russia. Huh. <clears throat> wow. That- How is that for weird? Well, I... I don't think that's as weird as much as that's one of those um, divine calling moments that it's like, yeah, you needed to yeah, say that. it was amazing. He needed to go. It was home. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what a cool yeah. thing. I mean, if that wasn't one of those moments, you may not be here right now to have this conversation. If he was Absol- like, absolutely. follow who? I could have. Snap. <laughs> I could have. Yeah, I could have. I could have completely 
you know, not made 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 it out of there for sure. Yeah, he could have been like, I'm not following anybody, and just broken you in half. Um, yes, <clears throat> but yes. what an interesting thing, especially for you to not think about that or to really, yeah, almost even recall it, and for him to be like, this is what you said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I was just scared, so scared. I just, you know, decided to say that. I don't know. Why. <laughs> I appreciate so, you being honest. But it worked. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people, yeah, there are a lot of people that are in your shoes who are a pastor as well that would be like, you know what? It was straight up 100% Jesus speaking directly through me. You were like, just terrified. Absolutely terrified. terrified. (laughs) (laughs) And and God was still like, hold on, hold on, I got you. (laughs) Hold my drink. That's exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, I have so many of those, but it's, it's sort of along the same lines. Very dramatic. He's one of my best friends. Became my roommate, by the way. Because he got kicked out of everything and lost everything, his livelihood, place to live, wow. everything. And he didn't have any other skills. So I'm like, yeah, just move in. Come Sorry. on in. You know? <laughs> no, at least you know you're protected. Like if somebody tried to get in, you're like, <laughs> no, yeah. we got the bruiser. We're totally good. Here's, here's, my, here's my muscle, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. So you've mentioned that you've, uh, you've lived on four different continents. One of the things that you yeah. hadn't mentioned that I think is must have been a big thing um, was you mentioned a little bit with being in show business. So I want to talk about some of that, but why don't you start from the beginning and give us a kind of the higher overview of how you, how you were a little kid, where you were, how you ended up seeing the fall of Soviet Russia and what happened, Mm -hmm. how you became a recording artist, like all of that mixed to become who you are, but give us the overview of that. So then we can dive in a bit further. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Moscow, and my my mom is Russian, my dad's Chilean. So, like, if you look, if you're watching this, not listening to it, I look completely Latin, right? Like, I don't look Slavic at all. It's because of my dad. So, uh, we moved to Chile when I was like four years old, and my mom and dad were both Marxists, and you know all of that stuff. And at the time, they had just they were about to elect the first socialist, democratically elected actually socialist president in history and he was elected in Chile. Well, the the military w- didn't like that and they overthrew the president, bombed the, the thing and bombed the, the, the his uh, presidential palace. He got killed and they proceeded to arrest hundreds of thousands of people and put him in concentration camps. And uh, so it was like mass persecution. I mean, not, I mean the numbers vary greatly, but some people say oh, about a quarter of a million total, right? were detained, arrested, many of them tortured, killed, electrocuted, disappeared without notice. If you've heard the song, They Dance Alone by Sting, that's the, that's what it's about. Um, and my dad was in a concentration camp, um, and my mom and my sister and I were in hiding. So she had like a fake passport, she had a gun, just in case, and we were like completely underground. And um, my first, actually my first childhood memory is standing outside of a this... Um, this the concentration camp, they put him in, in soccer stadiums because they ran out of prisons. They didn't have enough space. So they had these soccer stadiums full of people, right? And so she was standing outside of this fence and I was holding her hand. That was my first childhood memory. And she was trying to talk to the soldier, like a guard, and trying to pass food for my dad. And like a little, you know, like paper bag or something like that, and which he actually never got, we eventually learned. And then after he was released, he, and he was one of the lucky ones. We were uh, also one of the lucky ones because we were we could we were accepted into a refugee camp that was overseen by the United Nations, so the military couldn't come in, and so we were protected that way. And eventually, we we got asylum in Germany, 
um, didn't stay there for super long, for just probably about a year. Back to the Soviet Union, my mom was so shell-shocked. We you know, were set up, and, uh, we ex experienced a lot of poverty there, lived in a communal apartment. You know, it's just Soviet Union at its worst, right? And uh, then my dad got a, got a contract to work in Mozambique in Africa. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in Africa set from 7 to 14. I was there. It was, it was There also we had food, food shortages, civil war, bombings, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, back to the Soviet Union when, after they got divorced. And it was like, again, from Africa to this, the worst of the Soviet Union, one bedroom apartment, three people, my mom, my sister and I, single mom raised me. Food shortages again, you know, and uh, I went to college there and I literally graduated with a master's degree in economics uh, the year the Soviet Union fell apart, 1991. And in 93, I went into show business um, and just was lucky enough to see success very, very quickly. In about a year, I was on national television and then I was everywhere, you know, magazine covers, radio, TV, albums, shows from small venues all the way to big, big venues like sports arena level type fame so that's the quick version of it well well done with the quick version <clears throat> i'm sure there's a <laughs> lot of details that go into all of that um yeah 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 i i know as a musician that there's <clears throat> solace that can come from playing music and mm -hmm. creating your art no matter what is going on you're able to dive into that so what was that like for you to be able to be that artist through and through all of that to then become who you were i think um I think it's nature and nurture. We will we will never know, to be honest with you. Um, I my theory is that artists usually have a suffering in their past, right? Because there's an emotional muscle that you develop over time, um, and then many artists have also, I think, a variety of experiences that are just different. And I have like this plethora of experiences, cultures. And I think those are the things that contributed to the artistry. And that's my theory. I would, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, I think that gives you these superpowers, the ability to connect, to connect human to human nature. That would be my guess. You know, in my, in my case, I had to learn. Like I, I literally moved four countries by, by age seven and learned four languages by age nine. So it was just relentless stuff, right? Like you'll go from place to place, from country to country. People look differently. The body language is different. The yeah. language is different. How they communicate, how they relate to each other is all different. And I really, I really, it's, and it was, it was painful. I, my dad tells me when we moved to Africa, I was sort of quiet for a full year. Like it, well, he would bring me to social sort of things, mm -hmm. gatherings or whatever. And I was just there not saying anything. And I think I was just shell-shocked. I was so confused. Didn't know, you know, where I belonged and everything. And that was sort of the trauma that helped me develop some superpowers, right? Uh, and, you know, there's a one of the things I do in my coaching program is that I interview top experts in the world about this stuff. And one of them, tell about Ben Shahar, he tells me about this thing in psychology that most psychology students in the first year don't even know about. Everybody talks about PTSD, but no one talks about PTG, post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens, you know. And you trauma makes you uh, more stronger, more resilient, more creative, uh, gives you uh, cognitive abilities that most people don't have. Mm. 
some of this. So I really, uh, I really, uh, I'm grateful, super grateful for the trauma early on. That especially the layers, right? It's culture. It's dangerous. Civil war. It's military goods. You know, like like you 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 get really acquainted with suffering and fear and uncertainty. You know, and I think if you either wired you're wired a certain way or just make some choices on how to interpret that, it gives you the ability to really really succeed and flourish in life because you're not scared by uncertainty yeah. you don't you know interpret risk the same way other people do you relate to people i think that's the big the biggie for me is that i realized that because i was trying to read body language and language and tone and intonations and words um that gave me almost like this supernatural ability to understand a human being and mm-hmm. relate and it works really well in marketing, obviously, you know, yeah. if you're trying to communicate. It works really well if you're a coach. It works really well if you're a musician, right? Because you're trying to, you know, you're trying to um, communicate a sentiment that will resonate with the mass audience, right? You write a song about love and you want, you know, millions of people to go, yeah, that's how I feel. And I think all of that, in my, in my, my theory is that all of that is rooted in all that early childhood trauma. I'm right there with you with that same theory. But I also think that most everything is rooted in childhood trauma, <clears throat> no matter what it is. <laughs> you know, right. you, you can tie back everything to something that shaped you in that er- those early handful of years. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> as you've talked through this, I'm thinking, man, some people have a hard enough time when they're a little kid, like moving to a different house or a different town away from their buddies. Right. You know, even if it's in the same like area, they go to the same school or whatever, like, oh no, you moved a couple blocks away. And you're like, I moved multiple countries, multiple continents. And what a beautiful way to be able to look at that and go, yeah, there was all of that and craziness in every spot that we went to and danger and mm-hmm. trauma from each and every spot of it that I'm, I am totally aware of the growth that comes from that sort of stuff. But it is a choice to be able to actually do that. You and I could be having a totally yeah. different conversation. You could be blaming every single bit and every single piece of that. Now, do you think that there was yeah. some of that that you actually did for a little while um, and just oh, didn't yeah. hold on to so. it, though? Or was it something where you, you were kind of nurtured out of that? I think it's both. Uh, okay. A lot of it is nurtured out as well. But and, – and honestly, I – I I can't take credit. I honestly can't. Like I don't because it's so early on, you know. Like you know, all of this stuff continued well into my teenage years, and you know, even with the, the last move was like it was a divorce. It really deeply traumatized me. But um, but I would say it's a combination. I think of something that was just some muscles grew on their own. But some of the stuff, yes. For example, one specific thing that really did me in is my parents' divorce, right? It just, I couldn't find my way out of it. And I literally, that's uh, sort of my breaking point was not civil war, not danger, not moving, not uh, sort of this risk or even lack of safety or lack of, of material uh, resources. It was it was this this fear, primal feel, fear of the heartache that happens with divorce. So I was like growing up and I would just literally sabotage every single romantic relationship I had. I would cheat, lie, be a jerk, draw somebody, you know, just try to push the person away. And uh, I hurt myself, hurt other people. And uh, that thing I couldn't, like, I just couldn't get over it. And uh, I, I had to get a lot of coaching to to change that. And that's part of the reason why I'm coaching now is because... I realized that coaching 
in, in the ability to be being coachable, right? Having access to a coach that gets you, but being coachable, having that humble, hungry, willing, eager heart is massive, right? And I had that, and but I couldn't have gotten out of it without that kind of thing, and it accelerates your growth in tremendous ways. So I just was lucky enough to have this one man in my life, and he just healed me, you know, like he just basically rewired my brain on how to do romance, for example. Um, yeah, is that is that a good answer? Yeah. Okay, yeah, answer I mean, there's no <laughs> good or bad answers, I guess, when it comes to your life. <clears throat> yeah, that's right, um, yeah. I find it interesting how how that was the thing that broke you or really yeah, messed you right. up. Um, but that uh -huh. is kind of telling in a sense. I'm sure you're more of a lover than a fighter. And if right. if you watched your two parents that were in love, being able to no longer hold on to that and being younger and not knowing what do I do and not having that example from there. After all of that craziness, like even when you mentioned that a little earlier, you kind of slipped in just they got divorced and I moved back to Russia. It was like, wait a minute. What yeah. happened there? Mm -hmm. How did they get mm -hmm. to that point through all of that and then go, you know what? We're done. We've been through a lot. So now we're done. Like <clears throat> that's a bit much. And for that to actually take you and and show you I can't do this anymore. Did that lean into when you were in show business? Like uh, was some of that part of that the you know, you being public facing and kind of having anybody throw anything they want at you. Yeah, it accelerated mm -hmm. the it it sort of revealed it revealed mm -hmm. the dysfunction and the brokenness um, uh, quicker and amplified sure. it tremendously because basically I I went from nobody and I'm also also another dimension for you. It's a minority. I'm a minority. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I was born there, but I'm uh, I, have, I have darker skin. Um, I've been a minority everywhere I've been, like mm. literally everywhere. Every single country, I've never been local because there's something odd about me, right? In Africa, I'm not African, clearly. In Russia, I, I don't look Russian. In the U.S., I have an accent. Even in Chile, people quickly understand that I'm, yeah, I might look like them, but the minute I open my mouth, it's different, right? So that I have other sort of sources of cultural formation. Mm. Um, but so this is just a, another layer, right? But um, with show business, I went from being this sort of, you know, ugly duckling minority, you know, like literally I was like one or two of us in the whole high school, for example, right? And luckily in my class, actually, I, I didn't experience a ton of racism at all. People really loved me and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, but uh, but I stood out. You can, you can tell that I'm like uh, the other, like I'm the foreigner. And I went from that to all of a sudden being you go you go from exotic from ugly to exotic or from like minority to exotic. So if you're mm. famous and look different, then you're exotic, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and uh, so I became this sort of I mean they called me the sex symbol of you know whatever you know like. So you you go from that from to million literally millions of of women you know teenagers and young women having posters on their walls and all of that, all of that, right? All of that bizarre over-the-top stuff. And that actually doesn't help at all, you know, because yeah. like, you, this is not normal. That's just so not normal. And uh, you don't know, like, and I was completely, I was already unprepared, right, for romance. <laughs> now that threw me over the edge uh, very quickly. Like, I didn't know what to do with that at all. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, it was just too much. You know, it was just too much. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it, basically. So when you shut down, you started to kind of break apart from that. Obviously, coaching has helped with that. But 
how did you get to the point where you knew um, I've got a problem? And I think that's one of the big things for people on that listen to this show. It's like, look, they're going through stuff. People may not have gone through the exact same things you've gone through or had millions of women throwing themselves or putting your posters up on their walls or anything like that. But they still, I think it's all universal in the sense that we try to figure out how do we get through the stuff that we're trying to get through? How do I actually get past it? So how did you get through that trauma? Not only just the trauma with your parents getting a divorce and and what came of that, but all the other traumas, like what sort of modalities, trainings, even uh, coaching and things of that sort, do you feel really actually mm-hmm. did the trick for you and helped you work through? And what did that look like? Well, I think it honestly starts with if with understanding you're tolerating something that's unhealthy, right? So in my mind is, of course, there's signals early on. Everybody has those signals, right? You have a hint that you have a weak spot or a blind spot, right? Of course you do. Life sends you signals. Your surroundings send you signals. Your work situation sends you signals that you are whatever, you know, lacking in something. So with romance, I had very clear signals. Okay, like what's what's the common denominator of all those breakups? Moi. Uh, what do you do with that? You decide to brush it aside, self-medicate, or just ignore it and try over do the same thing over and over again expecting different results. That's what we do. And there, ha- there comes a point, and that's sort of the, the self-awareness challenge, right? If you're self-aware enough, maybe this is like this listening to you, to this podcast will help you go before it gets extreme to go, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to ask for help, right? But for me, I was a, I was a knucklehead. You know, it, what brought me to my knees was I started dating this girl and she was, you know, I was sort of this perfect cliche. So I had to date a, a runway model and she was a runway model and she was popular. And I'm like, and, and I'm not, I'm being completely honest this, my motivation with this. I had no plans of marrying her. Uh, I was like, you know, we're going to probably look really good in magazines. That's literally how I, was, how I was thinking at the time. It was just the most shallow cliche type person. And, uh, and she got pregnant and uh, we had a baby and, I was freaking out, you know, because all of those things were flaring up in me and I just treated her terribly. Uh, I wasn't violent or anything like that, but I was definitely a jerk. And and she left because I wasn't, it wasn't a safe bet. And she took my kid with me, my oldest daughter, Deanna. And that, that's, that was the trigger. That was the, the bottom of, you know, rock bottom. I can't, I can't. I don't know how to live. That's sort of, I remember having that thought over and over again. I don't know how to live. And I was already thin. I lost more weight. I was just clinically depressed, you know, clinically depressed, absolutely rock bottom. And I was playing sports arenas at the time. I had a number one hit at the time. And that's where I was. So I would say to you, if you're listening to this, don't wait until it gets to that. <laughs> you know, and Be proactive, you know, just be proactive, have the good sense, the self-awareness to do something radical and mass take massive action before you hit a place where where you have so much pain that you're gonna you know you're gonna feel it for a long time so that's that was sort of my thing with um that that triggered it but the benefit of that i think for me was that i was you know i have so much i had so much success that it was hard to find humility in the midst of so much success 
And when you are so unsuccessful at something, specifically with this, it gave me the humility and the urgency to say, I know nothing. Uh, I trust you. I found a, a, a man who just saved my life. And I will do literally everything, anything you tell me I will do. I will obey, you know. So, like, I, I was a coachable on the level of, you know, Karate Kid, you know, like the boy who was following whatever his name was, you know. Um, it was like that, like Eastern philosophy, Kung Fu level obedience. That's that's where I was at in my posture. And that saved my life because you need to be you need to be able to be coachable in, in on that level. And then you progress very quickly if you actually listen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, your soil's ready at that point. You know, you're uh, yeah, <clears throat> you're not able to get it or understand it before that. So, uh, do you still talk to your Mister Miyagi? Do you still have a relationship with that yeah. person? I do. Yeah, Mister Miyagi. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, I do. I had like I had lunch with him like what three weeks ago. Nice. He visits every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. What a cool thing. I owe him everything. I just love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, I think I think everybody can feel like they've had some sort of love lost, some sort of situation where they can look back and go, man, shouldn't have been a jerk. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that or whatever. Um, but at a level of what you had gone through, having that relationship, having a baby, hitting tour after tour and singles and all of those things that are going on, that can be a lot that could break somebody. That could be a lot that could actually really crush somebody. So in those dark moments when you knew things are really, really tough right now, what's the sort of protocol that you started to go through on your own, even after meeting your Mr. Miyagi or, you know, leading up to it. But looking back, are you able to say, like, I could see how I was starting to be self-aware and kind of move along through it? Like, What did that look like for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. And I think uh, before I even met Mr. Miyagi, I went to my mom. You know, and, and I think that's actually a, a, a really important insight is family is is everything. And if you're lucky enough to have a caring parent in your life or both, I didn't have my dad with me. He was physically, I have good memories of him, but he was not present in my life at the time. But I was with my mom and I was clinically depressed and I would just seek her out and I would just hold her hand. Like, that's how bad it was. I would just sit there and and I wanted to hold her hand. Hmm. Like that's all. That's that's the relief I got, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just pretty terrible if you think about it. But I think that's important. It's an important thing to note is that, yeah, you don't have to have a protocol or figure it out. Go to somebody who loves you, yeah, and stay close to them, and then you'll then you figure out the next steps, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, it was uh, I clearly this changed my life. I mean, that's a, a lot of the stuff I still have in my coaching program, is that is find somebody who is good at what you what you suck in and listen attentively and have and have sort of a Mr. Miyagi attitude right um to towards that person is I will tell I will do everything you say and that's not normal in culture especially in American culture it's not normal to be obedient it's not no, normal to be humble it's not normal to be vulnerable even uh but it, because of that so because of that I feel like we don't grow quickly enough so our speed, our it the and if you take that heart, that posture, it accelerates your growth. And that's I really believe in that deeply, deeply, deeply. That with that gentleman, and now I was I think his best student, in that sense. Like I was that guy who would do anything, right? Um, like I'll give you an example. For example, very practical. 
I, you know, I was like, I became a Christian, studied the Bible, became a Christian. He, this guy was a pastor. And, and he basically said, okay, you need to do A, B, and C when it comes to the lifestyle. And uh, it was, uh, let's put it that way. I didn't understand what he, the words that were coming out of his mouth, right? Because the lifestyle of a pop star doesn't quite blend with scripture, right? Um, and I literally was like, I don't even understand how you can live like that. I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying to me, you know? <laughs> and he goes, well, this is what it says. And you have to, this is what's going to get you healthy, right? And I was like, all right. And I literally, cold turkey, you know, changed my lifestyle completely. Cold turkey, in that moment. Um, there was another moment where he was like, hey, there's this conference happening in Los Angeles, and I, I think it's going to really help you see just the, the journeys of the people, the speakers, the maturity, the insights. And I want you to go there because you're like, you know, I was like six months in. And I was at the same time um, campaigning. This is another story. You can actually look it up if you Google Marxism and Christian reformers. You'll see stuff. I was actually campaigning for the for Boris Yeltsin, the president. Uh, in his 1996, he had his re-election campaign. This was the last time the communists were about to come back, and they were winning. And the Boris Yeltsin's uh, team chose my song as their anthem. And I was campaigning for him on television. I was touring. Also, they were paying us pretty well. Uh, and uh, they were, and it was a life or death struggle, right? If the communists came back. Uh, losing my career was the best case scenario for me, right? Uh, so I was like all in on against the communists, which is ironic, right? Because I was brought up by a couple of communists, and um, and I was and it was an important life or death historical election. It really was, you know. And um, and I'm like, there's I have a 12 city tour co coinciding with that conference in Los Angeles, and I'm like, dude, I'm a you know, do, on the on the on the side of good here, like participating in a historic election campaign, and they're using my song as the anthem for it. Um, you know, a little busy right now. And he goes, "Well, yeah, but you know, if you want to really grow, I think the timing is important, and I think you're just getting sort of established in this new journey. Um, I, I think you should still go." And I'm like, all right. And I canceled the whole 12 city to, uh, leg. It was one of the legs, like I, I did others, but I canceled the whole leg of a, of a tour. And and we and my whole team was livid, just because instead of livelihood, this is bread and butter for them, right? And they were like, dude, you lost your mind, you know. And but I, I, I obeyed, you know. And sure enough, it helped me tremendously. He was right. Like I saw people incredibly accomplished people uh, who are living a life that I, that I was just starting. And, and I was like Grammy award winners and Hollywood producers and actors. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've caught a vision for my life, you know? So it really, really helped. And so that's just sort of one of the things, right? It's just find a Miyagi, be coachable, do everything they say. The other one was having a spiritual practice, right? And uh, one of the things that I study quite a bit and have for a long time is, even the top completely secular uh, researchers on human flourishing will tell you that one of the core um, elements of success is to have a spiritual practice. So contemplation, prayer, scripture, 
engaging with ancient wisdom. And the reason for that is because you get a perspective of how the world works, how the universe works, how you fit in, why you're even on this earth in the first place. These are things that are really important for human beings. I don't care who you are. Just a little right? bit. Yeah, it, they really are. They're existential things that sort of, that have to, you have to put that piece of the puzzle somewhere and it changes everything. So I started developing a prayer practice, a scriptural practice. I started practicing community with people. So on a level of, uh, and that's another thing that all research, like all the research that has nothing to do with religion will tell you, is that the three most important things you'll have in life to flourish, uh, the Harvard study, the 80-year-old 80, 80 longitudinal study of, of, of human flourishing will tell you, these are the three things. The four things is family, deep friendships, right? Faith and meaningful work. Four things. Those are the things that will make you happy, that you'll literally live longer. You know, you'll do better. You'll be healthier, wealthier. Um, you'll live longer all across the board, right? So I started developing those dimensions, right? My family was okay, but I was, oh, my gosh, it was so much better. I started developing deep, deep friendships. Most of my friendships were sort of superficial. It was either people I worked with or people I partied with. And I started developing deep, deep friendships with accountability, with love, with engagement. Um, my work took a whole different meaning, right? So I started looking at my work as an, as an act of service to the world. And that adds layers to the, the stuff that you do, right? And, you know, for example, I, we started doing amazing philanthropy work, and I've never done it before at that point. So we were, t we're doing two festivals a year for about 3,000-plus orphans. It was unbelievable, the scale of it. So even my work took a, a whole different sense of meaning and depth, right? One of, those, uh, one of those festivals, Michael Jackson came. It was that awesome and big, you know? Um, so, so meaningful work, deep friendships, Deep, deeper family connections. And of course, I was working on my specific blind spot, which is romance. So I was, I was sort of hanging out with three, th I had three married guys who I really, I was like, okay, if I have, if I can get what they have, I'm going to be set. And I would just literally invest in friendships with them, having meals with them. I would just make myself, I would position myself to be around them, their wives, and I would like torture them. Okay, so how do you find each other? How do you how do you court? How do you how do you how do you know I was the one or she was the one, right? And I was like torture the wives as well. Like right? I was like really weird. And and but I was that determined, right? And they would give me instructions. They would be like, Well, here's the thing, here's the principle. And you know, I remember very vividly I had a conversation with a buddy of mine and we're like out having breakfast. And he was like, Okay, so what is the list of what you're looking for in a woman? And I'm like, Oh, boom, 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 boom. Like, that's easy, right? He's like, All right, I'm like, what's your list? When you, when you found your wife and he gave me his list and I'm like, I'm throwing away my list. I'm taking your list. It was that transformational, right? But you have to seek it. You have to be curious. You have to find who to learn from. And from those sort of building blocks, a whole new person was built, right? And to me, I'm so grateful that, and so I incorporate the stuff in, in what I do now, helping other people and I'd never stopped. So I, I, you know, I study all the experts. I talk to the experts. I had all this other stuff, so it's timeless stuff, it's tried stuff, things that I know works, and it's it, it's true stuff, meaning there's research. So if you're a homo sapiens, if, you're, if you have a pulse and a heart and you're a human being, this stuff will work for you, right? So that's what I love about it is that it, the answers are there. It's not super complicated. It's really our willingness to look for them, 
and incorporate them into your lives and you're going to be set. You can have an amazing life. You've brought up coachability and being coachable a bunch of times. You've even talked about it and hinted about it, but you've also specifically said you got to be coachable and you got to be open. And it sounds like you went through a situation or, you know, obviously situations, the moving, the baby and mm-hmm. all of that. And, and the change of your heart and the way that you looked at things, um, but coachable can kind of be a four letter word for some people. They're like, look, I get it. It got to be coachable. But there's more to it than that. What you're actually talking about is more of a recipe that ties in that anchors things to why and how you were able to be coachable. So as a coach, you've gone through different conversations with people, I'm sure, where you're like, just get out of your own way. I've had conversations with people like that too, where you're like, you got to stop just being in your own way. You can't do it for them as the coach. You can love them through it, but they have to be willing, able, and ready to be able to do all of this. So the coachability and being coachable side of things is actually more of that recipe again. But what is it that you work with people on in your coaching to be able to maybe help them get to that point where they see that without going through some crazy life changing situation and still being able to have that change. So are you able to cat, uh, be a catalyst for that? Honestly, the answer to that is I sell them on the dream. I send them, I sell them on the vision. Um, okay. And, and, and I, there's no, I don't think there's another way to do it because, because one of the advantages that I have is I see the future and I see what works and what the steps you need to take and the techniques and strategies that you need to employ and bottom, but they can't, and and they can't. They mm. are where they are, and I was literally. I had a session uh, maybe a couple hours ago before we recorded this, where I was selling them. I was like, guys, I'm gonna sell you, and I would just <laughs> paint a picture, and I would go, can you imagine, you know? And I, let me show you how you get there. It's this, 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 and this, and this. But then, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's overwhelming. Yes, it it requires discipline, and you have to rearrange things. And reprioritize things. And, and yes, it's emotional labor. And yes, it's fear. And you better get used to it. But I promise you this is going to do this, this, and this. But I have to explain exactly what it's going to do and how it looks in your personal life, in your just personal sort of your, your space of, of, of peace and creativity and flexibility, how clearly you see your vision um, in your workspace, how, what it could be, mean for business, revenue, right? Can you imagine like if you are in this place, do you how how would you be able to measure even at least project how this can help you in your business? And, and once you sort of create that little you know step by step by step image, they can do what whatever it is that motivates them, right? Because for some it, it could be like you know I work with some people that are Stanford graduates, Harvard graduates, and I go, give me the monetary significance of this if this were to happen Mm. and they were like millions tens of millions i'm like is it worth it for you to do this work heck to the yeah you know and some of it is relational some of it is just peace i just don't want to be stressed out anymore this way you know i want to i don't don't know how to manage stress or risk or uncertainty right is it what is it going to do for you to to have a level of a creative space a state of flow on demand what would that do for you? And they can just fill in the blanks, right? What would that do for your family if you were to not, you know, if you're a single guy and you really feel heartbroken and you f- sort of feel like you're a failure? But what if we t- 
tweak this and this and this and this? Do you think that's going to change the way you see women uh, dating, romance in general? Yeah. What would that lead to? Uh, I might find somebody who I can do a, make a life, create a life together. Well, what is that worth to you? A lot. Okay, start now. You know? So basically, I sell it. <laughs> 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 I love that you don't no holds barred with that. You're like straight up, just sell them. All. I literally use those words. <laughs> I just sell them. <laughs> yeah, because I'm excited for them. You know, like I really believe sure. this. You know, so yeah. anyway, but, yeah. But to be able to call that out in, in the beginning of it, I I enjoy that um, that sort of sense of humor. Anyway, of like, look, this might sound like this, and this is how it's going to be because I am. Yeah. Now on with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, Christian, look, it has been awesome having you on the show. I think we could just talk for hours and hours and hours, and I hope we continue to talk at some point. Um, we do need to wrap this up a little bit. And before I let you go, what's that one piece of advice that you would give to somebody that's on their path towards self-mastery? I would say, um, Okay, there's a few, but I'll I'll land on one <clears throat> that your inner game will drive your outer game, always, and the world and your surroundings and your culture, in your job and whatever will tell you otherwise. They will measure your performance. They will measure what you can bring to the table, which is really important. It's not unimportant, uh, but if you overinvest in in your outer game in in and underinvest in your inner game, you're gonna hit a ceiling that it's going to be hard for you to break through and you're not going to reach your potential. The only way to reach greatness, you, if you develop your outer game, you'll have a career. If you work hard enough, you have talent, you have a work ethic. If you work on your inner game, you will have a calling. You will change the world. And I advise you to aim higher. For somebody to feel like they know that they have a calling, but they're not sure what it is or how to go about it, uh, I really, I love the idea of working on your inner game for your outer game, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of times that we think we have to do the outer stuff. Like the outer stuff will get me this. If I get this job, if I make this sale, if I get this giant payday, if I have this woman or this man or whatever, then it'll all be. And that's honestly just BS. Um, you've got to be able to work through that. So I'm glad that that's how we ended this. This is, that's a great way to be able to put that. Um, again, before I let you go, where can people find you and where can they connect with you? Uh, you can, you can just Google Christian Ray Flores and you'll find, you know, most of the stuff. ChristianRayFlores.com is a newsletter that is absolutely free. And um, it's called Headspace by Christian Ray Flores. And if you subscribe to it, it's all of the stuff. It's just tons of insights and content and interviews Highly, highly recommend subscribing to that. If you want to get serious about actually getting help and progressing and accelerating your growth, go to exponential.life. And uh, exponential is spelled without the E, so it's a cool way to say to say exponential. Starts with X, exponential.life, and you'll 